I'm Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of AD, and welcome to the AD Esthete. Lee Mandel, the AD 100 architect, knows classic 20th century design inside and out. But what intrigues him most about some of the genre's most famous buildings and furnishings is how many of the most admired projects were created not to celebrate beauty alone, but also to encourage wellness, both mental and physical. In this episode of the ADS Theat, Mendel takes us on a European tour from Otto Wagner's Church of St. Leopold at Vienna's Steinhoff Psychiatric Hospital to Alvar Alto's Paimio Sanatorium in Finland. Buildings and interiors that embody style as well as humanity. I hope you enjoy the show. I know a few days ago when you and I were talking about this uh, topic, this particular episode of the podcast, we'd been discussing how really beautiful and how sort of iconic a lot of furniture designs have been that turned out upon closer inspection to have been made for health reasons. I would say not limited to furniture. I would say no. architectural design responses. And I think that's a really beautiful topic because one doesn't necessarily think of hospitals today um, as being especially beautiful or as being in any sort of way um, eternal in their sort of artistic uh, expression. And you've visited some of the most amazing modern, early modern and modernist buildings that have had this at their core, the, the sort of the healthfulness of a space and how it can address through its vocabulary, its influence on patients, on health giving. And I'm really glad we can talk about that today because I think it's a lot on healing. That's the word I need. A lot of things that we don't think about. Yes, well, particularly relevant now is crises often lead to the greatest creativity. And they are usually responses to problems that have happened. So. When we look back historically, we can seek hope in those responses we've seen in the past and they can inform our present and hopefully give us hope for the future. Mm -hmm. When we look at the span of, this, of these kind of health issues over the 20th century, they cover a wide variety of health issues. What I was really struck by was in 1900 of Vienna, we have the birth of psychoanalysis with Sigmund Freud and we start to acknowledge that mental health and mental illness is, for the first time, a disease, like any other disease that could be treated. Right. And so out of the secessionists and the birthplace of modern thought in Vienna in 1900, where you have Nietzsche and Max Planck and Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Gustav Klimt, Otto Wagner, uh, Joseph Hoffman, Adolf Luce, this incredible birth of modern thought after the Victorian era, they're starting to address these things head on instead of hiding them away or just making believe they don't exist. And one of the most beautiful examples is on the campus of um, an institute in Vienna uh, in St. Leopold in which Otto Wagner created the great secessionist church. And that, that chapel, it, it's, it's really a chapel 
it's so intimate, but the chapel addressed issues of space and design in which people who had schizophrenia or claustrophobia or agoraphobia, that that design addressed those issues and created a beautiful celebration, spiritual celebration of space that included and allayed the fears of all those people who were confronting those ailments. How did Wagner address this through materials or forms or silhouettes? You know, just because when you're addressing something that is, let's just say in this instance, mental health, mental disease, um, you're having to uh, respond to something you don't see. That's, that's very true. He obviously was very influenced by Freud and people had issues of claustrophobia. And how did he address that? We take for an example. So he created this, uh, I wish we had a visual here, but he created a, a ceiling that appears to be an infinite sky. It's, it's, it's the antithesis of Gothic cathedrals or Renaissance cathedrals where you see surging arches and masonry rising up. This is a weightless ceiling that has a stained glass window, four little slivers for the four apostles that give the appearance of being sky. So it's a white ceiling that's a kind of uh, arch ceiling. And when you look up, it looks like you're looking up at the sky and the clouds and you're free. It does not repress you and come down and make you necessarily think to defer to the altar so much. Mm. It, 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 it's about emancipation of thought and freedom in religion. Mm. That had never really been done in a church before. Secondly, people could get very consumed with not being able to see the pulpit mm. or have access to things. So it's the first time I've ever seen employed a raked, a raked audience congregation in which the entire floor is slightly ramped so that each pew does not have an obscured view of the um, ceremony going on. So no one could then feel as though they weren't included or part of something, creating a kind of intimacy by having the freedom to see everything. Then he looked at the edges of things that some people felt as though forms could be aggressive on them. He addressed the liberation of form in that and the church pews all have rounded edges. There's no sharp edge in the place that someone could cut themselves on. And then the notion of procession was addressed in that he created these expansive doorways with kind of eased edges so that the procession in and out did not cause a challenge or make anyone feel as though they were being favored or not favored. It was a very generous kind of architecture. So he was able to look at those issues that were addressing mental disease, which had not really been acknowledged mm -hmm, before, mm -hmm. and provide them in a built form in one of the most magical places. If anybody can get to go visit it, it is a truly inspiring space. It is a different kind of celebration of humanity and religion. It's really interesting what you said a few moments ago about the feeling but people feeling as if that they are that they're all part of the same ceremony. They're all experiencing it in the same way. They're able to see the pulpit. They're able to see the ceremony. So that you also are addressing the raking, like you were saying. You're addressing that simple gesture. You're you're addressing not only possible feelings of claustrophobia and feeling trapped, but also possible feelings of persecution. 
it's a very liberating space. When you go into that space, the inspiration is that of air and light and generosity. And you don't necessarily feel controlled by religion or controlled by any other thing, but it's a very symmetrical space, but it is not mm -hmm. a, a traditional apse. It is a much more rounded square space, which is more equal. So everything about it seems to be friendly and, and accommodating to those people who may have had the fear of being in crowds or the fear of right. being in organized groups. Which is, which is such a, a really stark contrast to what had gone on that's right. In the 19th century and how people with mental illness had been treated. You know, they weren't treated as humans or or people who for whom space mattered. Well, there was never given attention to those people in special places or in this case an absolute celebration of them. Mm. You know, they were kind of just put in places but places weren't really built to celebrate who they were. And this is a celebration of triumph over mental illness. And you know, the secession is kind of the father of, of the whole modern movement is really Wagner, but he had two students. He had, uh, he had Joseph Hoffman, Adolf Luce, and Joseph Hoffman went on to found the, uh, the Bauhaus, the Wiener Werkstatt. So ironically, simultaneously when his teacher was creating this masterpiece, Mr. Hoffman addressed the notion of rehab medicine in another place in Vienna called the Perkestorf Sanatorium. Could, could we back up for one minute? One of the other notes that you brought up about Wagner's chapel, which I found incredibly thoughtful and really illuminating in a way, even more so than just the, the ceiling and the clear story blue slits to uh, to emphasize this, this feeling of the sky was the idea that you had mentioned that the pews were all of different widths to accommodate people who were calm, who mm. were restless, who were disturbed. The very fact that furniture could be shaped to address how a person reacts while they're seated. Well, what's, what's different in this period, and you probably know the word, it begins with a G, what is it called? A, a total design of things, Gimolta word? Right, yeah. I can never say it right. I'm not even gonna to try to say it. Yeah. But a complete work of art. It's, mine'll sound like an obscure Yiddish holiday, the way I said it. <laughs> or something. But, um, mine'll sound like an entree in a Viennese restaurant. But uh, that, that notion that total design could affect our lives is a wonderful celebration as we move into modern thought. So as you brought up the pew, the stained glass, the pulpit, the, the raked congregation, the tapering of the doors, the openings, it was the architecture, it was the components in the architecture, it was the objects in the architecture, whether it was stained glass, a goblet, all of it was total design addressing that same issue of how to make those people with issues feel comfortable. And that's even the very, confessionals. Even yes. the confessionals were larger yes. than normal. The thing was different. And to, to address that and give that over to people that had been forgotten in the past or had been jettisoned away is a wonderful celebration that we can look to now as we approach this pandemic that we're in. What was the public reaction of, of to that Wagner design? Were people shocked? Did they find it excessive? 
No, actually, it's, it's, it's reductive. Well, it's extravagantly understaffed. Um, in other words, it, it seems very minimalist in a way, but it's very enriched with vocabulary we had not seen before. So I think there was such a huge movement in Viennese society as you look around to music and painting and art and theater and science and all the disciplines of culture. It was celebrated because it was joining forces with a lot of other movements simultaneously. It was a rising up of modern civilization. And so I think it was encouraged. And if you look at his pupils, which I talked about, for example, uh, Joseph Hoffman, he simultaneously uh, did the Perkestorf Sanatorium. And in a way, I think that sanatorium, which is the ultimate design of everything from the glassware to the chairs, to the textiles, to the, even the plants and the thing, are about healing, not about sickness. And in a way, it kind of gives birth to the notion of spa in a modern way, mm -hmm. as a place of healing, because people went there to recover or to rehabilitate. And that's a fascinating thing that started to happen at the beginning of the 20th century in, in Vienna as well. So, so this is the sanitarium Perkersdorf. Yes, yes. And it was done simultaneously with his teacher's masterpiece. Mm -hmm. It was his first building uh, in Vienna. And it's, it's a glorious space, illuminated passageways with um, uh, divided light glass, a, a, you know, beautiful uh, fenestration, wonderful mm -hmm. artwork. There's a beautiful, one of the most famous Gustav Klimt paintings is in the main gathering space that you walk in. I don't think we'd ever seen a masterpiece of art in a hospital before. Think of that. That Klimt made this incredible work there for all people to experience, but it did take on a kind of elitist place because it was um, so lavish in a way, but it also took care of rehab medicine, but a lot of affluent people used it too. So that was navigating two kind of worlds. It was navigating rehab medicine, but it became a, a, a respite or almost like a, a rehab place for people who are recovering from ailments. Now, do you find yourself in your work looking back? Because obviously, although these two particular projects, along with the others that you'll be talking about, are for specific wellness purposes, specifically for people with very serious issues, there's a universality about that vocabulary that was created for that particular specific world? Well, the inspiration to me is that watching people try to solve problems mm -hmm. and having the problems transcended to become an art form is the opportunity that the crises give us. And in those cases, it's influential in its philosophical and in its um, intellectual uh, pursuit not necessarily in its literal pursuit. I mean, what one isn't looking to copy that vocabulary or anything. Mm -hmm. When it looks at what the intent was and the problems at the time, that's what teaches us about inspiration and how to dig deep within ourselves to find a solution to something that is potentially very, very difficult to endure. Mm. Now you've been to all of these spaces we're, we're talking about, yes? Because you're, you're a great traveler. Well, thanks. <laughs> I got to, I had a 
wonderful opportunity at Architectural Digest to write about some of these things. But um, we had a lot of work in a lot of places and I'm an eternal student. So anytime I would be in a place working, I made sure I went to a place to learn, even if it was an hour or two away. So being a student of all things culture and life and architecture, I felt it uh, my responsibility to keep asking questions and going to see the things in which I had studied or I'd want to study, to see them in person, to understand them better. I mean, even today, looking at, at those projects and looking at the photographs that you often show on your Instagram and that you've written about for the AD website, again, with your own photographs, some of these ideas, they seem still so shockingly new and shockingly smart. I think that um, when you solve a problem and, and it's artful, it's timeless. You can take it out of its period, but you can never uh, undermine its ingenuity or its thought. And that, that beauty of thought is something that resonates forever. That's what becomes a classic, but maybe shocking in its day because it, it does something, becomes a classic eternally because it does something so profoundly. No, but what I find really interesting is, you know, we read about modern houses. We, we read about the, you know, Villa Tugendhat. We, we, we read about all of these famous, famous houses. And at the same time, the most inventive architecture going on at that same time, for me, is what's being done in hospitals. Hospitals, wards, spas, sanitariums. I would say civic, civic things were happening. Society was changing. There was a real broad concern about people's health, people's well-being, where you gather, where you read, where you worship. And that's what I look to as inspirational, you know, and as we move on to some of these other things, the focus on making all of us together feel better and get better mm -hmm. is inspiring. Yeah, I know, but I, 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 I totally agree with you. And I think what's really, you know, so fascinating is how much of what we know about modern design comes from these more civic-minded projects. Uh, residential too, but you know, I, I, I noticed something super interesting around the breaking point of this period. The movement that got all the attention was the international style because um, Philip Johnson, Henry Russell Hitchcock at MoMA, they named it that because they felt it was a transferable kind of architecture that could go around the world. But what interests me is that modernism is much broader than the international style. The international style is one segment of it. But what I find fascinating about these and some other places we'll talk about is that modernism was a liberation of the previous technologies and things that were unavailable, but it developed into a kind of regional modernism that was really overlooked while the international style became the star mm -hmm. movement. And now as we're relooking at the past, some of the regional modernism is becoming the most human and these kind of structures we're talking about, the most right. influential buildings in tandem with the international style, but not exclusively to. So, mm -hmm. When you, when you look at, at Hoffman and uh, Wagner, and then you even go up to people like Oliver Alto, and you start to see the response that light, air, freedom, and technology gives you 
it's not necessarily so transferable like the international style was. Its beauty comes out of its understanding of its regional context. Mm. So you, you, you almost can't extract that out of its context and make it work, whereas the international style was international. So now we have a wonderful understanding of both the international style with its contributions, but regional modernism, which used the tools of modernism in a different way. Which gives us a complete opening That's into right. Finland. I went to Finland for the first time in the fall. I'd never been to a country like Finland before where the regionalism was so apparent mm-hmm. within not only the modernist context, but prior to the that. context of Art Nouveau. And I mean, everything was so, the vocabularies were so geared to the country, the landscape, everything that you were experiencing was so definitively Finnish. It's interesting. People often lump the Scandinavian countries together. Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. Norway's Mm. kind of ways away. And I just made an observation about the three countries that might be interesting to touch on, which will go back to why Finland's responses are what they are. When you look historically, the Danes were the great Vikings, and they made wonderful ships. You can see the ships from the year 1000. Their joinery is still intact. And they became a culture that celebrated the woodworker design, furniture, the architect, and the symbiotic relationship that they were dependent on each other to create beautiful things that lasted like their ships did. Mm -hmm. And that was under the guise of a monarchy that celebrated that as a very specific thing in Denmark. So joinery, Beautiful detailing is something they do in everything they touch. And Sweden was a country that had the French royal family marry into it at the end of the 18th century. And there's a merging of the Calvinism that you see in the in, in, in Denmark and in Sweden with Catholicism of France, which changed their point of view somewhat and it was a kind of sanctioning of the Louis reigns and the melding of two cultures, but the Scandinavians being much more held back, they took the gold, they made it pewter, mm. they took the bright color paint and they made it washed out. But never did they forget that they were like Rome or Greece and they conquered the world. So neoclassicism under the monarchy becomes the thing that can identify all things Swedish. Mm. But you go to Finland, And Finland was a toll booth. It was part of Sweden. It was part of Russia. It was, it it never had the autonomy and it had a much rougher climate and more difficult kind of experience. And there was no monarchy. Their monarchy became nature Mm -hmm. and their struggle and their, their pagan understanding of a kind of primitive sophistication that is the thing that makes that space and place so different whether it's the Saarinen's and, and way back or up through Alto, there's that love of nature and the understanding that nature is the thing that is their monarchy that permeates their culture, which you noticed when you were in Helsinki. Yeah, I was, I was really astonished at how even getting, stepping off the plane at the airport, the, the way the airport was designed, you, you knew exactly what country you were in. Mm-hmm. The way... Um, the seats uh, in the airport were designed to look like mountain ranges. The cell phone 
the mobile phone charging units, you know, or, or, or like wood saplings. I mean, you really, you know exactly where you're, where you're getting up to play. Now. I, I was quite taken. Um, the first time I went to Helsinki, I flew from Stockholm and I looked out of the airplane window and I saw thousands of archipelagos because between Sweden and Finland, it's all archipelagos. And then I realized as a student of modernism that Alvar Aalto's famous vase is the shape of the archipelago. No. It occurred to me from the air, looking down at those countries in that region, that that context of nature also trans translated into the object. And he responded to his context in that way and, and all his buildings. And in a different vocabulary, the old man Saarinen did, and his son did in another vocabulary. But right. it all comes out of their context, which is so interesting. The Sarinas are very interesting to compare father and son as well. And as you know, they founded Cranbrook in, in America. Indeed. And I remember being hugely impressed by um, you know, the, the work of father and son in mm -hmm. Helsinki, because mm -hmm. they're, they're so polar opposite, um, but yet still responding to the same uh, geographical. And you know, it's a great story. When there was the competition for the St. Louis Arch, both the father and the son entered. And when the notice came, the notice came to the house, it just said, Mr. Saarinen. And the father <laughs> didn't know which Saarinen it was, and the younger. And the younger Saarinen beat out the father's Saarinen for that, that commission. But back to Finland again. Um, back to and, Finland. And, and back to this notion of health and so forth. Perhaps, and you've been to Turku, perhaps one of the most startling moving places you could ever be is a sanatorium. They call it a sanatorium called Paimio Sanatorium by Alvar Alto. Right. It was designed in the 30s. This was a big departure from anything we'd ever seen before. Because like the Finns, as you were talking about and their love of nature, there was a pandemic, a respiratory pandemic. The virus we're in is a respiratory pandemic. There was no cure. And because of the Finns' understanding of nature and the importance of nature, the cure was nature. So Oliver created a building. He was a student of Wagner and of Hoffman. And it's wonderful to see you say, what do we learn from the past? Look at what these men learned from each other. And we move forward to Paimio. And it's, it's a celebration of life and not of death. And people would come there for a year at a time because there was no vaccine at the time. And we're talking tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. And this was a completely different way of wellness, thinking of wellness. Each floor had an outdoor sanatorium, an indoor lounge. There is a lot of color in the building. The floors have a beautiful yellow because you know what Finland can be like in the winter. As bright as it is in the summer, as dark as it is in the winter. I mean, I went in November and it was, even the, in the daylight, it was like being in it's a closet not, with the door half open. I've been there on the solstice when, it, in fact, I went to Paimio for the first time at 11 o'clock at night in the solstice and it was still kind of light out. But I'm reminded of the great Stephen Sondheim lyric from A Little Night Music about that time of year where he says, uh, let's see, I remember, the sun won't set. It's hopeless to fruit or to fret. 
the hands on the clock turn, so don't <laughs> sing a nocturne just yet. Exactly. And there you are at midnight, and it's still kind of right out. And that's when I went to Piney Sanatorium for the first time. And it's very isolated within a pine forest. It's into the woods. The placement of it already is put in a geographic situation that's supposed to be therapeutic. That's right. Uh, and for you brought up the notion of, of furniture and decorative arts. So many things came out of that building, as we know it. The, the Paimio chairs, the Alto. He never liked a sharp edge. Mm. When you look at the archipelago, there are no sharp edges. So all his seating are bent plywood, very humble material. He was a very humble man. That's the other thing I find magnificent about the Finns is their humility on the one hand, because they've had to be humbled by their nature and everything they've had to endure, you know, whether it was borders, whether it was nature. So his furniture, all soft edges, and he was so thoughtful that he felt when a patient was lying in bed and looking up, that light became a very important thing in healing. So he created a small light, bedside light, that was behind the patient's head. Mm -hmm. So when they looked up, they didn't see anything bright. Then he created a sink, a no-splash sink, so that water didn't get all over the floor and it didn't make noise. It's a beautiful sink. I actually got to uh, collaborate on designing an exhibit. Right. At Basel, about an amalgam of the of the patient room at um, Pamia Sanatorium. So I got to not only visiting it, touch the sink, deal with the sink, mm -hmm. deal with the light. They had built-in desks in all the room to look out at the forest. And so the patient was in a beautiful locker with no hard edges. It was a slightly bowed shape against the wall. And every component that you deconstruct from that alleged hospital place of healing was thoughtful to make people feel better and to show people that they mattered and they could recover. The second time I went was in April. There was still snow on the ground, but it didn't stop. It's now was a children's rehab hospital. Mm -hmm. It didn't stop the patients from being in the garden in wheelchairs, being wheeled around in blankets by the doctors, which is mm -hmm. very poignant to see that. But yet still being used more yeah. or less in a, as a wellness setting yeah. and it's still working and well now they're trying to they've been nominated for unesco world uh, heritage site and uh we're working to find new uses for pymio uh because mm -hmm. it's not a tuberculosis thing but there's an effort to to find new uses and um open it up to the world more now because it's such a spectacular right. place yeah i know in the in the photographs that i've i've seen of it it's so uplifting Mm. And it fills you with joy. It fills you with a great deal of hope. Mm. In fact, uh, when you come up to the front entry, this is the first time I'd ever seen this. There's a large canopy that's the shape of an archipelago. There's no hard edge. It doesn't look frightening when you come up to the uh, overhang to enter. It's very welcoming. And to mm -hmm. the left of the entry are some of the public cafeteria, which is beautiful, but it's all in four stories of orange and green awnings come out to greet mm -hmm. you almost like it's a resort in a funny way yeah. but it's to welcome you and not be afraid to address and confront your issues i, I love that you would you'd send a, a wonderful quote of altos where he said the walls are light and the ceilings darker this makes the general tone more peaceful from the perspective of a lying down patient I mean, this, this idea that 
he and his, his wife, I know, who was also part of the team putting mm-hmm. this all together, really granular in the way that people were going to use every inch of that space. Digging inside yourself to ask yourself what it is you need or want or would make you feel better and to deconstruct those things we've taken for granted that can be better is very inspiring. And even Saarinen before him, well, actually Saarinen, the younger Saarinen, had a wonderful, wonderful quote, somebody effect that you can't design a chair in a room until you know a room in a house. You can't design a house until you know the street that it's on, and you can't design a street until you know the village it's in. And that kind of way of being so thoughtful about the effect that everything has on the environment is very unique to the Scandinavians, to the Finns, and created these incredible uh, um, masterpieces. Well, and also it, it, it goes back to your comment about the Finns and their sort of native humility. Mm. The idea that you may be an architect, you may be a great architect, but what you do is always informed by something greater than you are. That's right. There is no narcissism in this that I could feel there. There is a general sense of well-being and a civic pride that happens in all the things. That train station by the Elder Saarinen is breathtaking. That train station is one of the greatest buildings of the world. It is. And to be able to see this sort of squat, monumental, what is it, Finnish romantic Mm. structure, but it's nestled so tightly within the grid of the city, within the shape of the city, that you don't even see it until you turn a corner. And then suddenly it's just there rising like this sort of primeval mushroom. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of amazing to come across it. The whole city is like that, actually. Yes, it is. Coming it, across surprises. And also somehow they could pull off a spiritual, humble heroicism at the same time. Heroicism is a very good word. That's a perfect word. When you even look at, at the jewelry of, of Wexstrom, for example, it's primitive jewelry. It's all primal. Everything is so reduced down to its essence, but then mm-hmm. celebrated in that essence that it, it becomes a very sophisticated form of communicating. The other thing that I wanted to m- mention that I also thought was incredibly smart and I didn't even think about until you brought it up uh, was the fact that at Paimio, Alto even reduced the number of shelves that would be anywhere in the place to avoid dust settling onto anything that would then complicate the, um, the, the, the wellness of the patients. I was also taken by um, walking down, I was there when there were patients in there and walking down the hallway and there were a series of plants on the sill Mm-hmm. And the sun was shining on the plants, but the plants reflect, had their reflection on the yellow floor. And it was like a kentred silhouette almost, mm-hmm. but of the sun celebrating nature. So the reflection of the plants became as potent as the plants themselves. It was a, a beautiful experience. It's a really magical um, place. And I'd lo- I really long to go there someday. I, I think it would be just amazing to feel how 
again, something that's made for wellness, but yet has this universal spiritual. It uh, transcends its category into something yeah. bigger and all these things. And, 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 and speaking of the pandemic, if we just could touch on for a few seconds, mm -hmm. I think we can't miss the contribution that Jonas Salk and Lewis Kahn did at the Salk Institute in San Diego. I absolutely agree. It's right within that, that narrative line of what we're talking about. And Salk was a fan of Alto. Alto was a fan of Hoffman. Hoffman mm -hmm. was a student of Wagner, which links everybody together and links us in our virus to the things they were facing in their days. And the Salk Institute is where the polio vaccine had, had just been created and Jonas Salk wanted to have a building that he said would impress Picasso. Mm. So Louis Kahn, who was a spiritual magician through minimalism, could actually create a space and a building that was eternal in its way of hope. When you stand on the steps of um, the entry, engraved in the floor, in the actual plaza, it says that hope lies in dreams, in imagination, and the courage of those who care to make those dreams a reality. I'd had Lou Kahn as a lecturer, and I always thought Lou Kahn was an icon, but I never realized when I would be in a space like that how moved I would become by his response to something so terrible and to create such beauty out of it as the little band of water moves off into infinity into the Pacific Ocean. And that amazing plaza. Just staggering. And I was standing there thinking of Lou, mm. all the struggle he went through. And I was speaking to the superintendent there. And I said, what is it like to work here? He said, I've been here for 25 years and every day I'm grateful. I take a picture in the morning and I take a picture at sunset. And he showed me his phone and he said, Jonas and Lou interviewed all the people that were going to work here. And he wanted them to understand the importance of their work in a place of beauty and the topic. And it's no irony that that institute went on to do breakthroughs in AIDS, in Alzheimer's, and now it's addressing the virus. Lee Mandel, thank you very much for coming on the show today from your, your home on Long Island and taking us to various spots all over the world in buildings that are meant to improve our lives and to give us hope and that do still give us hope. They resonate. And in this time, we look to those things to inspire us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lee. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com. <laughs>